0: I should like to direct your attention once more to the great prayer of the Apostle Paul for the Ephesians, as it is to be found recorded in the third chapter of the Epistle to the Ephesians, reading from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner men, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. But at the moment we are still considering that great phrase, at the end of the 19th verse, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. I was reminding you when we began to consider this verse, this statement last Sunday morning, that there is nothing more sublime, more exalted and elevated in the whole realm and range of Scripture than this. This is the highest conceivable petition that a human soul can ever offer. There is nothing in the realm of contemplation or of meditation which is higher than this. This is the end of all theology, the acme of spiritual experience. We certainly are standing at this moment as we look at this phrase, upon the very highest mountain peak on which men and women can ever stand in this life and world. Indeed, there is a sense in which it's true to say that we are looking at and meditating upon this morning what will be the theme of our meditation and contemplation throughout the countless ages of eternity. We have seen, therefore, the necessity of being careful in our definition and understanding of this phrase, lest we misinterpret it in terms of a false mysticism which would teach the possibility of our being absorbed in the divine or the eternal, or an equally bad and nefarious pantheism which would suggest that God becomes lost, as it were, in us. Both those, of course, are to be avoided. And therefore, we considered this uh, great statement more or less theologically and doctrinally last time, and saw that in its essence, it means this. This is the result of Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. It pleased God that in him should all fullness dwell. In him, indeed, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we are complete. In him. And then I ended by indicating that uh, the scripture does help us uh, to look into this great mystery, not to give us a final understanding, of course, but it does, with its analogies, uh, help us to see something of how uh, this actually works in us. I referred you to our Lord's own picture of himself as the vine and ourselves as the branches in the vine, and then the oft-used illustration of the body. The illustration used by the apostle in this epistle, we saw it again in that twelfth chapter of the epistle to the Romans, it's there in 1 Corinthians 12, he constantly uses it. It obviously is the nearest that we can ever get in meditation and understanding to a realization of this extraordinary possibility that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. In us as members of the body dwells the fullness of the head. The fullness of the head passes through to every single individual member of the body. However poor, however uncomely it may be, and however much it may be considered less worthy by us, in comparison with other members. In other words, we indicated that this doesn't mean we all become equal and identical in every respect. But as to use the word of the apostle in the 12th of Romans again, God gives this according to the measure of faith. There is a division. We can all be filled with the fullness of God, and yet we're not all identical. We're all different. According to our measure, we are full and can be full to overflowing. Now then, there is the point at which we have left this great subject, but it's essential that we should be carrying all that in our minds as now we proceed to look at it once more. And as we do so, I would again insist upon our realization that we are dealing with something which is essentially practical. Now, there are people who seem to think always when they come across a phrase like this, that here you've turned your back upon the practical aspect of the Christian life, and now you're just going to enjoy yourself in some kind of vague, abstract, mystic contemplation. That is a complete error. The man who wrote these words was an evangelist and a teacher and a pastor. And as he wrote this portion... He wasn't simply concerned to give these Ephesians uh, some mystical delight or some interesting metaphysical problem to unravel and to try to understand. He, He didn't write this in order that they might argue about it. He wrote this in order that they might know that he was praying and praying constantly for them, that they might experience this, that they might know this in their daily life and living and combat as Christian men and women. It is, I say, something which is essentially practical and active. It is a concrete reality, a very real possibility. Indeed, I uh, venture to assert that there is nothing which is quite as practical as this. Now, let me demonstrate that proposition. I am asserting that this which we are considering together here, this prayer of the Apostle for these Ephesians, is the most urgently practical matter for the Christian Church at this very moment. But alas, I'm afraid it's true to add that the Church doesn't realize that. Because, you see, we've got this fatal notion that to be practical means that we indulge in activities on our own level. That isn't the New Testament view ever. If you really want to do things for God and for Christ, says the New Testament, you don't begin to get busy. You first of all make certain that you are filled with the fullness of God and the power that follows that of necessity. You see, this man who writes here, who conceivably did more in the Christian church than any other man has ever done, let us never forget that this man spent three years in Arabia before he set out in his ministry. He didn't begin to act the moment he was converted. He didn't to subscribe, I think, to the modern slogan, which is, give the converts something to do, rush them into an activity. Three years in Arabia. But when he came out of that Arabia, he came out filled with this fullness of God and with power. And that is the explanation of his mighty activity and the amazing results that attended his ministry. And this, of course, we know has been so many times proved in the history of other servants of God throughout the centuries. There was never a busier man or a more active man than John Wesley before 1738, but it didn't lead to much. But then you see as the result of that one experience in Aldersgate Street, his whole ministry was changed. And he became powerful and mighty. Why? Well, he had followed the New Testament pattern. Realizing that he lacked this power and this ability, and this fullness, he almost felt that he must stop preaching, you remember. But it was only when he came to this position that then God used him and the Spirit was able to employ him in that striking manner. So that I say that there is nothing more practical than this. The man who really is practical is not the man who is just bustling and busy and excited and rushing about here and there. The man who really is practical is the man who is being employed by God and used by the Holy Spirit. All oh, that the church might come back to realize this. It's revival the church needs, and it is only when she is revived that she becomes Powerful. And while we are trusting yet to our own abilities and activities, we shall avail nothing. The church needs this fullness, and this is the thing that leads to the practical activity. But is it not true to say that the church, I say, is lacking in this respect? I came across a phrase only this last week which seemed to me to say the truth about so many of us who are Christians at this present time. The man writing said, religion seems to be part of the unexamined and largely unused background of life. He says religion, with so many people inside the church, is nothing but a kind of unexamined and unused background. It's there in the background of their lives, but it isn't in the foreground, it isn't in the center. He then goes on to use what I think is a very wonderful illustration. He says, to the vast majority, it can be compared with the knowledge that in an emergency, 999 can be dialed. Well, let every man examine himself. Where do these things come in your life? Is it something that you like to have? You know it's there. If, if you're taken desperately ill, or a loved one is, or if you're suddenly confronted by a loss of your income, or if some disaster happens, or if you're only your a desperate, then you can turn to it. Ah, oh, it's nice to have it in the background. But that isn't where it's meant to be. That isn't the kind of thing the apostle is praying for for these Ephesians in his prayer. It isn't some reserve you can fall back on. It isn't some emergency station you can ring up and be assured of help when you do so. It's unexamined and it's largely unused. Now, I'm sure that we all must have felt, as we've been working our way through this great prayer, we must have felt condemned. Do we know what it is to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man? Is Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith? Do we know with all saints the depth, the breadth and the length and the depth and the height? And to know this love of Christ which passeth knowledge that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Are we? Are we concerned? Is this central to us? Is this vital? Where does Christianity come in our lives? Yes, those of us who are Christian. Is it something that we only remember on Sunday morning, I wonder, and forget even the rest of Sunday, leave alone weekdays? Is it something that we are only reminded of now and again, or is it the very center and be-all and end-all of our life and existence and activity? Paul is praying that it may become such that we may know all the fullness of God. Well, very well. What does that mean in practice? What does it mean experimentally? We've looked at it doctrinally. Now let's look at it experimentally and from the practical standpoint. What is true of a man who knows what it is to be filled with all the fullness of God? Well, first of all, it must mean this, that God dwells in us in such a way as absolutely to control us and all our faculties. If we are filled with all the fullness of God, well, it follows, I think, of necessity by a logical inevitability that God controls the whole of our life. He controls, if you like, our cognitions, our feelings, and our outward actions. Men must be thought of ever in terms of his mind and his heart and his will. And if we are filled with all the fullness of God, it means that God is controlling us in the mind, the realm of cognition, in the heart, the feelings, the sensibilities, and in the realm of the will, the outward actions, and all our activities. Well, now let's examine this. What does that lead to? What would it mean? Well, it means, I say, first and foremost, that our thinking is dominated by God and by the mind of God. Now, there are statements here in the scriptures which indicate very clearly what all that means. Take, for instance, that statement that I was reading to you just now in the twelfth chapter of of the epistle to the Romans where the apostle puts it like this. He says, you see, brethren, by the mercies of God, I beseech you that you present your bodies, your literal physical bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Don't worry about the translation there. It means really spiritual sacrifice, if you like. But here's the thing I wanted to emphasize. And be not conformed to this world, But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's it. That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The renewing of the mind. You see, the mind is never free. There's no such thing as free thought. It's always an utter impossibility. Man's mind is never free. Oh, I know the Rationalist Press Association claims that it is, but that's just the tragic fallacy that ever results from sin. The mind is, by nature and as the result of sin, always controlled by the world, the outlook of the world. Very well, the difference between a man who's not a Christian and a Christian is that whereas The non-Christian's mind is controlled by the world. This man's mind has been transformed and has been renewed by the Holy Spirit. And the result is that this man is now able to think in a spiritual manner, whereas formerly he couldn't. Now, there's a great exposition of this, as you recall, in the second chapter of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians where he says that the natural mind, the natural man, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. He says that they are foolishness unto him. He says that uh, uh, what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of men which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. He says this natural man doesn't receive them; their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. Why? Well, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no men. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? And then the most amazing statement. But we have the mind of Christ. You see what he means? If we are filled with all the fullness of God, if Christ dwells in our hearts by faith, we have the mind of Christ. It's inevitable, and the apostle claims it. In other words, uh, he says that the man who is filled with all the fullness of God is a man who can think spiritually. And this is a very wonderful thing. There is to me nothing more glorious, nothing in a sense more romantic about the Christian life than the way it entirely changes a man's type of thinking. His whole mode and method of thinking. Are we all clear about the difference between thinking naturally and thinking spiritually? This new outlook, yes, but not only the new outlook, but it's a way and a type of thinking for instance, do you find these epistles of Paul difficult? Or are you able to follow them? Do you feel you understand what he's talking about? That's a very good way of testing ourselves. These are spiritual thinking. This man thought spiritually. He says we speak these things uh, not, in the, not in human language, not in the words of men's thinking, uh, but uh, according to the spirit. We express them spiritually. The terminology is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. And, of course, unless we have the renewed, the transformed mind, unless we have the mind of Christ, these things are foolishness, but not to the man in whom Christ dwells, not in the man who has this fullness of God within him. His mind is now being governed and controlled by God. In other words, I can put it like this. You know that great hymn of Francis Ridley, Havergal, Take my life and let it be. Well, one verse she puts it like this Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. It's very difficult to put these things into words. But it is this essential difference in the type and the kind of thinking. It's unlike political thinking, it's unlike philosophical teaching. It's spiritual thinking, and that's why, you see, a man who hasn't much intellect can think spiritually sometimes very much better than a man of a very great brain. It's an entirely different type and mold of thinking. There is an instinctive, intuitional element in it, but above everything else, it is spiritual. Very well, that's the first thing I must hurry on. The second thing that it controls, of course, is our feeling, our emotional part of our being. And this, of course, is again equally inevitable. The man in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, all the fullness of God, not the fullness of the Godhead. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ. We are not told that the fullness of the Godhead is to dwell in us, but all the fullness of God. Such a man, I say, is controlled by the love of God in exactly the same way. Now, you can't read the Gospels without noticing how frequently our blessed Lord and Savior makes that point. He says that he hasn't come to do things in and of himself. He has come to please the Father. He has come to glorify the Father. And the thing he could say at the end was, Father, I have glorified thy name. In other words, when God controls our hearts, self has gone out. And that is really all that need be said. When the love of God comes in, the love of self goes out. And of course, when the love of self goes out and the love of God comes in, we begin to love others. It was all there in the twelfth chapter of Romans. But look at this great example of it, that notable example in the case of Stephen, the martyr Stephen. There he is condemned unjustly, being stoned to death. But what he said was this, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. You see, he was so delivered from self that like his blessed Lord and Master before him, he could pray for his enemies. He could love his enemies and pray God to have mercy upon them. Lay not this sin to their charge. And it's the same exactly with this Apostle Paul. Do you remember that great statement of his in writing to the Corinthians, first epistle, fourth chapter? He says, With me, it is a very small thing that I be judged of you or of any man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. What a transformation! There was a time when this man was very sensitive to judgment. He judged others, and he hated being judged himself, being criticized. But he says, don't worry, it's gone. It's a very small thing with me that I be judged of you or of any man's judgment. I judge not mine own self. That means that this man was filled with the love of God, and the love of self and concern about self had gone out. He was controlled by God. It didn't concern him now what people said and thought about him. It's what they thought about God that mattered. What they thought about the Lord Jesus Christ. That aspect of life is controlled by God. And in exactly the same way, the will is controlled by God. And all the actions and activities. Again, you see, our Lord puts it, I came not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. That's it. Even the Son of God didn't hold on to his prerogatives. He humbled himself. He became a servant and he set aside his own will and all he said and all he did was the will of the Father. I came not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Ah, but it wasn't only true of the Lord himself. You know, this is equally true. Of the Apostle Paul. Listen to him saying farewell to the elders of the church at Ephesus. He says, I'm rushing up to Jerusalem. And he says, I know not the things that shall befall me there. Save that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. His will was entirely lost in the will of his Lord. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine had been his prayer and it had been answered. It had come to pass. And he says the same thing again. You'll find it in Acts 21 almost an exact repetition of what he said at Ephesus. They were trying to plead with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. They said, we know that you're going to be dealt with very severely. Then Paul answered, what mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He had no will of his own. It had gone. It had become absorbed in that respect. He had surrendered it. It was lost. He was entirely governed by the mind and the heart and the will of the Lord Jesus Christ who dwelt in his heart by faith. Now that, I say, is the first inevitable result. Oh, let me put it to you in some great words by Charles Wesley, I think one of his greatest hymns of all. It's in the book, hymn number 655. Give me the faith which can remove and sink the mountain to a plain. Give me the childlike praying love which longs to build thy house again. Thy love, let it my heart or power, let it my ransomed soul devour. I would the precious time redeem and longer live for this alone alone to spend and to be spent for them who have not yet my Savior known. Fully on these my mission prove, and only breathe to breathe thy love. My talents, gifts, and graces, Lord, into thy blessed hands receive, and let me live to preach thy word, and let me to thy glory live my every sacred moment spend in publishing the sinner's friend. Enlarge, inflame, and fill my heart with boundless charity divine. So shall I all my strength exert and love them with a zeal like thine and lead them to thine open side. The sheep for whom their shepherd died. That's it. That's what he longed for. That's what he prayed for. This prayer that Paul was praying for these Ephesians. And that is what by the grace of God he was given to experience. Very well there's the first thing. All the men, the mind, the heart, the will, are subdued by and controlled by God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, a man who is filled with all the fullness of God is a man whose every spiritual aim and instinct are satisfied. All his spiritual aims and instincts are satisfied. Why? Well, he is filled with all the fullness of God. You see, the moment we are born again, the moment we are regenerated, The moment this new principle of life is put into us. The moment we become partakers of the divine nature. There are new instincts, new desires, new aims, new objectives. And these begin to stir. And we are anxious to have their fulfillment. And when we are filled with all the fullness of God, they are fulfilled and they are satisfied. What are they? Well, here is one, isn't it? The moment you have this life within you, you begin to have a desire that you'd never known before, to know God. I didn't say to know about God, I said to know him. To know God. You see, the psalmist knew it as the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my heart after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Do you know that desire? Has that desire been satisfied? That I might know him. This is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Not to know about Him abstractly, theoretically, so that you can talk and argue. No, no. A knowledge, an intimacy, a directness, a knowledge of God. That's the thing. And that is in every child of God. Oh, He's interested still in other forms of knowledge. But they're all secondary to this, to know him. And likewise, there is a love instinct, crying, clamoring for satisfaction. And here I'm referring not only to knowing the love of God and of Christ, we've already dealt with that. But you see, a child of God longs to be filled with love himself. He's unhappy because of an absence of love. Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. He's unhappy about that. He wants to love God more. He wants to love Christ more. He wants to be filled with love to his fellow men and women. And he reads 1 Corinthians 13 and he says, That's how I should be. I want to be like that. I want to be filled with this love. I want to be an exemplifier of it. And you see, when a man is filled with all the fullness of God, he becomes like that. Because the fruit of the Spirit is first and foremost love. And he becomes a man that looks like the men depicted in 1 Corinthians 13. Oh, we ought to spend more time in that chapter. It ought to be the subject of our daily meditation. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity or love envieth not, vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love never faileth. And if we are truly children of God, we long for that. We long to be like that. And I say, when we are filled with all the fullness of God, the longing has been satisfied, and we know something about this, we are like that, to our own amazement and then the longing for righteousness. Oh, our Lord has said this himself, hasn't he? In the most perfect manner, blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, filled with righteousness. Child of God, you of necessity must be hungering and thirsting and longing after righteousness. Aren't you tired of sinning? Aren't you tired of failing? Aren't you tired of going wrong? There's an instinct in you now for holiness and for righteousness. You no longer are complaining that the Christian life is narrow. If you are, you're not a child. You're confessing it. If you have to drag yourself to worship God, you're not a child, I'm afraid. Examine yourself. The instinct of the child is the longing, the desire for righteousness and holiness. And we have that blessed promise that it shall be filled. And then one other I would mention in passing, and that is the longing to have power to serve him and to glorify his name. I've already read Charles Wesley's hymn to you. He expresses it perfectly. It was his one burning passion. Listen to Paul putting it. Paul had received it. In what, Colossians 1, and 29, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, whom we preach. Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working which worketh in me mightily. He knew it. He knew what it was to be thrilling with the power of God. Through the Holy Spirit, He says, I'm working, I'm doing this, I'm doing it in all diligence. Yes, but I'm doing it according to, by means of, as the result of this mighty working that is working in me so mightily. Do we know anything about this, my friends? I take leave to say this to you in all humility. There is nothing more blessed under heaven than to know the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry for anybody who has never known it as he's been preaching and trying to expound this word. There's all the difference in the world. It's almost the difference between heaven and hell for a man to be preaching in his own might and strength and the power of the Spirit working mightily within him. But it can happen to the individual in conversation and in all his activities and in all his endeavors. Oh, when we are filled with all the fullness of God, all our spiritual instincts and aims are satisfied, and they are satisfied to the full. I mustn't keep you, but again go back, I beseech you, and uh, read and learn and commit to memory that great hymn of John Caspar Lavater, which we sang immediately before this sermon. O oh, Jesus Christ, grow thou in me, and all things else receive. it all there. There's the child of God crying out for the satisfaction of all these new instincts and desires. More of thyself, he says, less of myself. Let this poor self grow less and less. Be thou my end and aim. And so on. How he longs to be delivered from the darkness. My darkness vanish in thy light. Thy life. My death efface. The longing to be delivered. To be set free from self and sin and shame and failure and weakness. And to be filled with all the fullness of God. It's satisfied. All the instincts are satisfied. When we are filled with all the fullness of God. And that brings me to the last matter. Oh, what a terrible thing this problem of time is. I'm having to cut down these precious things, my friends. I know it's inevitable in the world as it is today, but it's... I say a tragedy, but we must press on. The last thing I want to say is this, that when a man is filled with all the fullness of God, every sense of want or of emptiness or of insufficiency has gone. There is no more want, there is no more sense of emptiness and inadequacy. Oh, there's endless teaching about this. Let me just quote a few verses to you. Do you remember what the Lord said to the woman of Samaria? He said it all to her. Whosoever, he said, pointing to that Jacob's well, whosoever shall drink of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever shall drink of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Shall never thirst again. How can you thirst if you're filled with all the fullness of God? But you know our Lord wasn't satisfied with saying that kind of thing once. He says it again in John 6:35. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth in me shall never thirst. Are you hungry? Are you thirsting? Are you unhappy? Are you ill at ease? Do you sometimes find yourself not knowing what to do with the next hour? Have you got a sense of vagueness and of loss and of emptiness and of purposelessness? Oh, are you hungry and you're thirsty? You have no right to be. If you are, it simply means that you don't keep on going to Christ. He that cometh unto me, he that keeps on coming unto me, it means, shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst, never. How can you thirst if you're filled with all the fullness of God? How can you hunger if life itself, life indeed, is within you? There are the promises of the Master. Are they true? Are they fulfilled in practice in life? Well, listen to the Apostle Paul answering in writing to the Philippians, chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to, be a, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. He's got there. He's in a state in which he never hung, is never hungry and he, he's never thirsty. He says it again in verses 18 and 19, but I have all and abound. And he was in prison when he wrote that, remember? A prisoner in prison, in prisons as they were in those days, dank and dark, unhealthy, perhaps chained to a prisoner. I have all and abound. I am full, he adds. Of course he is, because he was filled with all the fullness of God. And then writing to the Philippians, he says, But my God shall supply all your needs, all of them. No exception. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory, in Christ Jesus. That is to be filled with all the fullness of God. Christian people, do we know this? We are meant to. This is Christianity. Did you know that it was because of this and in order to make this possible that the Son of God left heaven and went to that cross on Calvary's hill? If you weep at the thought of his death when you take the bread and the wine and as you try to contemplate the cross, well, I say, put the right content into it. He died, not merely that you and I might be forgiven and saved from hell. He died. That you and I might be filled with all the fullness of God here in this life, not when you when you are dead and have passed into heaven and into glory. Here and now, in greater fullness, there but full here, filled to the brim. Here and now, he's praying it for these Ephesians. It isn't a vague idea he's setting up. He's praying that they may know it as he himself knew it. This is Christianity. And I say that to be content with anything less than this is dishonoring to the Lord. It is sinful. Don't be content with the mere fact that you believe in Christ and that your sins are forgiven and that you're a church member. Have you got this? Press on, I say. Never give yourself rest nor peace. Offer this prayer for yourself, the whole of it. And go on and on and on until you know something of this blessed satisfaction and have realized something of this fullness. Above all, I plead with you, don't think of it as a substance, as an it. The fullness of God is not a substance. Don't think in terms of analogies of pouring from a jug into a vessel. No, no, it's personal, it's God, it's Christ dwelling within. It's personal. Concentrate on the person, therefore. Go to the person. Act on your faith and speak to him. Tell him your wants and needs. Wait upon him, spend your time with him. And then he will give you of his fullness. And then you will be able to say with another man, William Tid Matson. Do you know anything about him? Well let me tell you hurriedly something about him. His father was a great man in the political world. And this young man was a man of very great ability and he was destined for the political world and would have done brilliantly with all his shining faculties and powers. But while still in the early 20s, he had a profound evangelical experience. He was converted. He received new life. And he gave up all that and he became a humble preacher of the gospel. But this is how he describes it. Oh, blessed life. The heart at rest when all without tumultuous seems that trusts a higher will and deems that higher will. Not mine, the best. Oh, blessed mind. Oh, blessed life. The mind that sees whatever change the years may bring. A mercy still in everything and shining through all mysteries. And then to end all life how blessed, how divine. High life, the earnest of a higher. Savior, fulfill my deep desire. And let this blessed life be mine. Shall we all offer that prayer together as we sing hymn number 415? 415. 415. O blessed life, the heart at rest. When all without tumultuous seems Noise> Om Oh, fill me with thy fullness, Lord, until my very heart o'erflow. Oh, Lord, let this blessed life be ours. Hear our prayer that we not only may be filled with this blessed fullness, but that we may live more evidently and obviously to all to the praise of the glory of thy grace. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now Throughout the remainder of this our short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage, and until we shall see that blessed face and rejoice together in glory. Amen.